Thank you for listening to this podcast brought to you by Reach Life Church in Asheville, North Carolina. Our mission is changing life by making, growing, and unleashing gospel-centered disciples of Jesus. For more information, resources, or to connect with us online, visit www.reachlifechurch.org. If you have your Bibles, we are going to be back in the book of John, John chapter 10. And if you'll remember, two weeks ago we were in John chapter 10, verses 1 through 21, where Jesus described himself as being the good shepherd. He said that he calls his sheep by name. And if you remember, I kind of questioned whether sheep really actually, when a, a shepherd calls them, if they really know their, his, his voice. And we watched a video showing that I don't know what I'm talking about. Jesus does, which is good, right? Uh, that should be a lesson to us all. But he calls his sheep by name. They hear his voice and they follow him. And we talked about how much Jesus loves his bride. He loves deeply his church. We are the love of his life. It's like a marriage. And, and he loves us so much, he didn't just say it with his mouth, but he proved it with what he did by laying his life down for the sheep. And you know, the truth is, whether you realize it or not, we are all born desiring to have a shepherd in our life. Whether you realize it or not, we are all looking for someone or something to protect us, to provide for us, to care for us, just like the good shepherd is meant to do. And, you know, if we're not careful, we will go to things that are not the good shepherd to be our shepherd. We can even go to to good things, as, as being true sheep of Jesus, we can go to good things to shepherd us and not really realize it. It might be um, relationships like in your family. How many of us, and I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but how many of us have gone to our parents to shepherd us only to be let down by our parents? Or you might be in a relationship. I said, don't raise your hand, Sherry. Um, <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it is. It's good to have you back again. So, uh, all right. So, I just had to say that. We are not like family. We are family. So, where was I? Okay. So, well, how many of you have gone to, uh, had a best friend betray you? You know, they were there for you, caring for you. Or how about work? You know, you thought, man, if I could just get that job, that job is going to shepherd me. It's going to take care of me, provide for me. Then you get that job, you're like, is that it? Or how about food and entertainment? Man, this past week, I came home tired and weary. And instead of going to the good shepherd, he says, if you're weary and tired, come to me and I'll give you rest. I went to a bowl of ice cream and to... Lame reruns and a, a lame NFL game. It was just the lamest thing ever. But I sat there, and the, the, the food let me down. You may be here going, you know what? You guys may be looking for a shepherd, but I'm not. I trust in myself. But if that's the case, you're actually your own shepherd. And we have to realize that if we go to any shepherd other than the good shepherd, 
Those shepherds will eventually fail us when the wolves come against us. And you know, there is only one good shepherd, and his name is Jesus. He said, I will never leave you in your trials. I love you guys. I love my, my church. And I'm going to prove it, and he proved it by laying his life down for the sheep. That's why we stay on the gospel. That keeps us at the heart of Jesus. And this morning in our passage, we're going to be looking at verses 22 through 30. And the time period that has passed from verse 1 to 22 when we were looking at the good shepherd to this passage that we're going to be looking at now, it's been about two or three months in the time of the Bible. And uh, we're going to pick up with verse 22. It says, At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. Now, the Feast of Dedication took place in late November and December. So we know for a fact that Jesus had just celebrated Thanksgiving and that he was in the temple <laughs> getting ready for the holiday season for Christmas. They probably had tree, Christmas trees all over the place, a few signs, you know, Jesus is the reason for the season. Wise men still seek him. And if you're really hardcore, don't take Christ out of Christmas. You know what I'm talking about, right? <laughs> well, actually, the Feast of Dedication, some of y'all are still going, what are they laughing about? But... Uh, <laughs> Actually, the Feast of Dedication, we call it Hanukkah. And it happened back in the, the uh, it started back in 164 BC when a guy named Judas Maccabees took a small army. He was a Jewish man. He came and he took a small uh, Jewish army and overthrew the wicked, a, a wicked Syrian ruler who had previously, previously come into Jerusalem had conquered Jerusalem, kicked out the Jews, and had gone into the temple area and desecrated it by sacrificing a pig on the altar and doing many, many ungodly things in the temple. And Judas came in there, and he cleansed the temple. He rebuilt the altar, and he rededicated it to God, and they began to celebrate with Hanukkah. That's what we call Hanukkah today. So they were celebrating that in this passage. And you know what the tragic uh, thing about this is that Jesus is the true cleanser of the temple, and yet they are reject, rejecting him. I'm having a hard time talking, and I know that. So, but anyway, so they are, they are rejecting the guy that, that can cleanse the temple, all right, thank you. We're family, right? You know, I'm going to sit down here in just a minute and just talk. <laughs> well, I'm act yeah, so. But in verse 24, it says that the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Now, the tragic thing about this is that they are acting like they really want to know if he's the Messiah, and that it's this really hard thing to discern. Are you, are you claiming to be the Messiah? But really, these group, this group of Jews is set in their unbelief, and they're hoping that when Jesus talks, that they'll be able to find something that he will slip up in so that they can execute him. 
And so Jesus says in verse 25, Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. In other words, he's saying, you know what, you're acting, you're acting like you want to know if I'm the Messiah. You're acting like it's this really difficult thing whether or not I'm claiming to be the Messiah. And he says in verse 25, I told you already. I told you. How did he tell them? By his works. He proved who he is by his works. That's what John is, is doing in the book, in this book, showing us the signs of Jesus that we may see the signs that point to Jesus and put our faith in him. And so he's saying, you see my works, and my works speak louder than words, and yet you're still acting like you don't know if I'm claiming to be the Messiah. Let's look at uh, the seven or the eight works that Jesus has done. The first one is in, was in John chapter 2. It says that he turned the water into wine. And then he heals the royal official's son in John chapter 4. He heals the paralytic at the pool of Bethesda in John chapter 5. And then he feeds 5,000 people with a kid's lunch. He walks on water. You know, I'm sitting here reading this, and as I'm reading it, sometimes I don't really get it, right? He walks on water. Imagine after we leave here, we go down to the French Broad River, and you see me walking on the water. What would you think about me? Yeah, what's he walking on, right? Would you listen to me? Probably not. (laughs) But he walked on water. He heals a man born blind. We can't even heal a human eye now. But he heals a, a, a man born blind. The next chapter, chapter 11, he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. And the funny thing is, when they raise him from the dead, when he raises Lazarus from the dead, his enemies go, Oh, we're going to have to kill Lazarus now, again, because he's making him Jesus look good. So it's just really crazy. But, one of, but the greatest sign that Jesus does is he rises from the dead. And Jesus says, I have told you by what I do. What I do declares and proves that I am the Messiah, and the problem is not with me. The problem is with you because you don't want to believe. And in verse 26... Look, he says something that is absolutely amazing. He says, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep or because you are not my sheep. And I just want to point out that we acknowledge that the word of God beautifully teaches that God is sovereign over his creation. Amen? There is not a single atom or electron or neutron or proton that's kind of like floating around outside of his sovereign rule. That that should be good news to all of us. That's why we can say that God causes all things to work together for good to those that love the Lord. Our God is sovereign, and he's in control of everything. And since God is sovereign over all things, that means that he has supreme authority over salvation. 
And that means that people don't accidentally come to Jesus. That's what this verse is teaching. Salvation originated in the mind of God. We did not come up with salvation. It isn't like we were like, we realized we were lost and we went to God and said, God, we're lost. You got to make a way. Hey, why don't you send your son to die for us? We didn't even know we were lost until Jesus came into the world as a light to show us. So in his sovereignty, God, before the foundations of the world in Ephesians 1, it teaches that his sheep were on his mind before he ever created anything. So what I want to point out here is that, now I can feel a split happening, but don't split yet. Salvation begins with God and salvation ends with God. And we, we should rejoice in the fact that God calls his sheep, he chooses his sheep, he saves his sheep, and he keeps his sheep in the fold of his under his sovereign shepherdly care. That should be good news to his sheep. Now, on the other hand, in the same breath, we want to also affirm that these same scriptures teach that God has given us freedom to make choices. We are not puppets. We make real, live choices. We are not like a little boy, a little child a little, that's in a grocery cart. You know those carts that have the, the, uh, the steering wheel? Uh, that don't really, they're just, you think you're going somewhere, but mom's really the one guiding it, and you're just, as a, you think that you're turning it. It's not like that. We make real choices in our lives every day that lead us one way or another, choices that we will be held accountable for by God. And somehow, and listen, this is the, the wonderful, beautiful mystery, somehow God's sovereignty and man's free will come together. I don't know how, and I'm not going to act like I, I do, but I know Scripture teaches both. But they come together for his glory and for our benefit. It's a beautiful mystery. And if you're taking notes this morning, I want us to, to share, I want to share with you three gospel truths that I see in this passage. And the first is this, that Jesus calls and knows his sheep. Jesus calls and knows his sheep. Look at verse 27. My sheep hear my voice. My sheep hear my voice. Again, it's important to understand that Jesus is the one who initiates the call. We only come to God because he calls and draws us to himself. And when Jesus calls his sheep, according to the word of God, they hear and they respond and they follow Jesus. It's kind of like the children's story, The Silver Chair by C.S. Lewis. There's these two children in this story. Their names are, uh... does anyone know? Jill and Eustace, and they are being chased by these bullies, and so they cry out, they, they decide they're going to cry out to a guy named Aslan. Now, Aslan, if you're not familiar with Narnia, is the lion that's in, that rules in uh, Narnia. He is the literary Christ figure that C.S. Lewis uses. He comes when they call him, and he rescues them from the bullies. And later on in the story, they're talking about that. And here's what Aslan says to them. 
when they were talking about how they called out to him, he said, you would not, I was going to do the Aslan voice, but I'm not doing good today. So <laughs> you, you would not have called to me unless I had been calling to you. You get that? He says, the reason you're calling me is because I called you first. That's in the scripture, isn't it? Why do we love Jesus? Because he first loved me, right? And that is, that is such a comforting thing to know that if you have come to Jesus, if you have put your trust in, in him, you need to understand he called you first. It wasn't that you called him. That means that he knew you where you were and still called you. That should be great comfort to us. And Jesus says in verse 27, my sheep hear my voice. And then he says, and I know them. Jesus knows his sheep. Jesus, and listen, Jesus knows everything, everything about his sheep. And I think that along with desiring to have a shepherd, you know, we all want to have a shepherd. We also all want to be known and loved and accepted. That's at the heart of all of us, to be known, to be loved, and to be accepted. But the problem is we know that there's a lot of things about ourselves that aren't lovely. And how many times have we been rejected by one another because of those unlovely things? And yet, the Scripture says that Jesus knows everything about us. It says that while we were yet Sinners, Christ died for us. That's why, that's why grace is amazing. It's, it's one thing for, you know, friends to help each other. It's one thing for even someone to help a stranger. But for someone to die for an enemy that wanted them dead, that is amazing. May we never let that get old in our hearts. That's why we want to stay at the cross. That is astounding that Jesus knows us. I love the quote by Gavin Johnson. It says that Jesus knows you fully, and yet he loves you completely. Boy, what would your life be like if you got that truth? That Jesus knows you fully, and yet he loves you Completely. Now, don't misunderstand. I'm not saying that Jesus finds you in your sin and that he just wants to leave you there. But he loves you. And he wants, he sees everything, and he wants to uncover everything and give you a new life. He loves you where you're, you're at, but he doesn't want to leave you where you're at. And this is astounding. He knows us better than we know ourselves, and yet he never will leave us, and he still embraces us as his sheep. That is amazing grace. So number one, Jesus calls us and knows his sheep. Number two, I want you to see that Jesus gives eternal life to his sheep. This is the, the groom's gift. This is what the groom gives his bride. He gives her eternal life. Look at verse 28. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. Jesus knows his sheep. He calls them. They hear his voice. They follow him, and he gives them eternal life, and they will never 
perish. So just as we all want to be shepherded, and just as we all want to be known and accepted, we also have another desire, all of us. We want to live forever. There's something in us that wants to keep on living. Ecclesiastes 3.11 states that God has set eternity in the heart of man. In other words, all of us know on some level that something's just not right and that there's more. There's got to be more than what we see in this life. God has put that in all of our hearts. And throughout the the history of mankind, we have all been on a quest to find this life, to prolong our lives. That's why we dye our hair when it starts turning gray. Some of us just shave it off. That's why we whiten our teeth. That's why we take baths in oil of Olay. And other soft softening products, ladies. And if that doesn't work, we stretch our skin. Because we're trying to put off looking older. We don't want to be reminded, right, that death is coming. We all know it, but we don't like it. There's something in us that says, this isn't how it's supposed to be. Our souls are thirsting for the fountain of youth, like Ponce de Leon. Remember him? Looking for that fountain of youth. I mean, how many of you guys, if you could get a cup of that, would drink it? Well, Jesus says he is that cup. And Jesus says, if anyone, in John 7, 37, verse 38, he says, if anyone is thirsty, and we all are, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes, remember I said that, okay? Remember I emphasized that word. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus says that I give my sheep eternal life. I give my sheep what they desire at the heart of who they are, eternal life, and they will never perish. So, Number one, Jesus calls and knows his sheep. Number two, Jesus gives eternal life to his sheep. And number three, and one of the most beautiful truths in the Bible, Jesus keeps his sheep. That is a beautiful, wonderful doctrine, truth, that I want to kind of just sit in for just a minute here. Verse 28 says, And no one, speaking of his sheep, will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Talk about a security system. Jesus is making it absolutely clear that he not only calls, knows, and gives eternal life to his sheep, but he and God the Father are responsible for keeping us, for keeping his sheep and making sure that nobody and no thing comes in and snatches us away from him. They have, it's like they have this tight grip together. If you're in his hands, we're tightly gripped in the hands of the Father and of the Son, and nothing can pull us away. Nothing can take us away. And so in this passage, Jesus is teaching that he desires that all his sheep would experience eternal security. 
um, or assurance of our salvation. Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but Sherry, I'm not asking you to raise your hands. Okay, but how many of you have ever struggled with assurance of salvation? It's, it's also known as the perseverance of the saints. If you're on this side, it's also known as once saved, always saved. If you're on this side, or you can bring them together, we're saying the same thing, that you are, that salvation is sure. And Jesus is, Jesus is saying that uh, he, if you're in the, the hands of the Father, you cannot be taken out. But you know what? God wants us to be secure in that. And I'm going to be honest with you that that's something that I have struggled with in my own life over the years of my salvation. Now, I was saved when I was a little six-year-old child. I called out to Jesus. I was all by myself. I was one of the worst kids you've ever seen. Uh, I was that kid that, you know, when you're doing reach kids and you see that kid coming, you're like, oh, I didn't, oh man, I was that kid. <laughs> Worse, I would spit on my teachers, just kick them, uh, do horrible things, and now I'm a pastor. So, uh, but what happened in that church is they were preaching the gospel. And somehow, through my parents and the church, I got the truth that Jesus died for my sins. I needed a Savior, and if I would call out to him and believe in him, I would be saved. At six years old, now, you, you know, I know you might be thinking, what can a six-year-old repent of? I've got lots of stories I can't tell this morning, but I needed a Savior, and I realized it, and I called out to him. And I was kind of like the blind man when you come to Jesus, and you're just like, oh, my goodness. When I read John 3.16, which was the major verse in our church, Whosoever believes in him, I was like, I will not perish. I will never perish. I remember just the joy. I was the greatest evangelist you've ever seen at age six, telling everybody what Jesus had done for me. But the further I walked, those fires started kind of getting cooler and cooler. And I began to think, what happened? And maybe, you know, maybe I didn't pray that prayer right. Or maybe I wasn't sorrowful enough. Or maybe I wasn't sincere enough. So here's what I, I used to do. And I don't know how many times I did this, but I said, Jesus, if you're not in there, I'm asking you to come in again. Can I, can I get a hand? Is there anyone else that's ever done that? Okay, you can raise your hand now. Good, okay. <laughs> why? Have you ever asked yourself, why do you do that? Especially when the Bible never teaches us to ask Jesus into our hearts. Now, as I got older, I began to realize, hold on, wait a minute. The Bible doesn't teach us to pray a prayer and ask Jesus into our hearts. And I could never, even knowing that, I could still not find rest in my soul. How can I be assured that I am saved? And there was passages like Matthew 7, 21 and 22 that haunted me. It says, Jesus says, not everyone, look, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Wait a minute. I was told if I prayed this prayer and asked Jesus into my heart that he would never leave me or forsake me. No one could snatch me out of his hand. But Jesus is saying that people can call him Lord and they will still not enter into the kingdom of heaven. I would read verses like this and it says, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Verse 22 says, on that day many will, will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And here's the scary part of this passage. He says, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now look at that verse 23. Jesus says, I know my sheep. Verse 23, he says, I never knew you. 
you are not my sheep, is what he's saying here. And I don't know about you, but I do not want to come to the end of, of everything on the day of judgment thinking that I was a sheep of Jesus, only to find out that I was this group. Depart from me, I never knew you. And that, you know, that haunted me for years. I would, I would keep reading those passages. And, you know, I think we've all been to funerals where the person that's being buried, you know that they lived a horrible, ungodly life, right? And they may have even said, you know, I don't even believe in Jesus. But someone will say something like, well, you know, we know they're with, with the Lord because when they were such, a, such and such an age, we know that they prayed and asked Jesus to come into their life. And Jesus says, I will never leave you or forsake you. And so there's this balance that we've got to have, that we want to have true assurance, but we don't want to have false assurance. Jesus says the ones that, that endure to the end will be saved. And so I have wrestled with this. For years I wrestled with it, and it was so crazy. I've got, I can't go into it at all, but part of my testimony with, with Kelly and how we were separated for a year and a half was related to this issue. I could never find that piece of how do I know I'm really saved? And you know what? The very verse that I was just reading from, Matthew 7, is the beginning of the answer. So let's look at that one more time, okay? We're going to look at it. I'm going to help you see what I've seen. I pray that God will help you to see this, okay? If you're struggling with salvation and you truly are Jesus' sheep. He says, not everyone... Verse 21 says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but who enters? The one who does the will of my Father. You see that? Jesus is the same, that not everyone enters, but the one that enters is the one that does the will of his Father. And I started thinking, how do you do the will of the Father? Because I want to make sure that I enter into the kingdom. Did you know what? There's it, the Bible answers that question very clearly in John 6, verse 40. For this is the will of my Father. What is the will of my Father? For this is the will of my Father. I was like, there it is. <laughs> that you go to church every Sunday that you witness to everybody, that you're a good boy, a good girl. No. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and what? Believes in Him, not does great things for Him, not serves Him, believes in Him should have what? Eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. What is the will of the Father? That we would look to the Son and believe in him and receive eternal life. That is the gospel. Very plain and simple. And, John, and in John 6, 29, another passage, it's not on the screen, but he says, this is the work of God. This is the work that God wants you to do. Believe in him whom he has sent. Believe. John uses the word 98 times. He says, believe, 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 
believe, believe, believe. I'm not going to go all the way, but he says it a whole lot. Why does he say believe? Because I think we as human beings have a tendency to want to somehow make a name for ourselves and prove to God that we can work our way to God. And he's saying, no, you can't. You need to believe in what Jesus has done from you, uh, done for you. Otherwise, notice that in the passage that we read in Matthew, it says, they said, look at all the things I did for you. You see that? He says, depart from me. I never knew you. And when Jesus is saying believes, he's, he's talking more than just a head knowledge. He's, and it is important that we, that we do have an intellectual understanding of the gospel. But it has to go further than that. It has to go down deep into our heart. It has to engage our hearts. That, and believes me, believe means to fully entrust yourself. And I've got two examples that I want to show what it means to believe. Um, Ladies, how do you know that when that guy is saying, girl, believe me, you're everything for me. How do you know that he really believes that? He entrusts himself to you by what? Marrying you. Okay? That is, he's entrusting himself fully. That's one example of what it means to believe. But also, to believe is like this chair right here. Let's just say that this is the good shepherd. And I can say, and this is one of the oldest but greatest examples here. I can say that I believe in this, that this chair or this stool will hold me, right? I believe it will. But am I believing that it does right now? No. I just believe it up here. Here's, I'm believing it now, right? And watch it fall. <laughs> but I believe right now, I am entrusting myself fully to it. And you know what Jesus says? He says, remember in the, the verse that we just looked at? It says that, that everyone who looks on the sun or examines the sun, he's wanting us to examine him. Now, you don't just sit in any chair, right? You need to... Make sure that it's sturdy, that it will hold you. And Jesus does want us to examine him. That's why he's given us the signs. That's partially part of why he's given us the signs, to point us to him, to examine him. Is Jesus trustworthy? Can I trust in him? And so my question to, to you this morning is, do you struggle with your salvation? And do you try to fix it by asking Jesus into your heart? Jesus says that the, will, uh, that the will of his Father is that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And so whenever I begin to feel like I am not saved, what do I do? Here's what I, I ask myself, what can I do? And that's what I hope you'll ask. What, what do I have to do? If I climb a mountain on my knees, will that make God happy? No, it will not. If I punish myself, what must I do? You have to believe first that it's already been done. There's nothing you can do. That is good news. There's nothing I can do. 
but believe in what Jesus has already done. That's called repentance. I turn away from myself and my ability to do anything. I let go of it, and I say, I want what you did, Jesus. That is what brings salvation. That's what brings assurance of salvation. And listen, if you will begin to practice that on a regular basis, it's what we call being gospel-centered, cross-centered. If you will center that truth, make this one work in your life. I'm going to be- this is the work of God. I'm going to believe that Jesus died for me. I'm not going to try to prove to Jesus that, that I love him. I want to understand that he loved me. Because once you understand that, it's going to set you free to love him in the way that you were meant. You're not going to be trying to please him because you're going to realize you already please him through what he did for you. You see the difference between that and asking Jesus into your heart over and over? And parents, I would encourage you. Uh, I'm not saying that if you ask Jesus into your heart that, that you're not saved. God uses that. But it's not what you did. It's when you realized what he did and you cried out to him and asking him to give you his righteousness. And even that, it's, your, it's believing in what Jesus did for you. And so we will no longer, as we become more and more gospel-centered, we'll, we'll no longer be tossed and turned by the waves of our emotions and our feelings. And church, we can find rest in Jesus, realizing that we are holding his hand only because he first took hold of our hand. And when he did, he promised that he would never let it go and no one will ever be able to snatch us out of his hand. And that is eternal security. We are secure in our good shepherd's hand. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray.